Thank you so much, brothers. I want to say, Pastor Sammy, thank you so much for letting me be here tonight for this rally. Thank you, other churches, for coming and being here. And then, Brother Kyle, thank you so much for your kind introduction of me. It's so good to be back in Alabama. I come here every chance I can. I live just north of here, up in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, that's where I supposedly live. I think I actually live in the Atlanta airport most of the time. But I uh, had a great time at supper with some of the pastors and church leaders and, and uh, teased a little bit about the fact that I've never been to Phil Campbell, Alabama. And uh, in fact, never heard of it before uh, getting the invitation to come. But uh, I love small towns. I love rural towns. I was born in a town about this size in eastern North Carolina. Uh, very small place that you've never heard of. You can't get there from here. It's right down the street from Why Not, North Carolina. In fact, I began my pastorate. I'm, I'm used to very fancy places, actually. I began my first pastorate in Texas. Hold on. First Baptist Church of Possum Kingdom Lake, Texas. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. That's my first pastorate. My first baby girl was born while I was pastoring at Possum Kingdom Lake, Texas. You just can't make this stuff up, I'm just going to tell you. But I am glad to be with you tonight. I speak all over the nation, all size churches, all kinds of places. Uh, last night I woke up, uh, not last night, yesterday morning I woke up. I did wake up during the night last night. Yesterday I woke up in uh, Ontario, California, East L.A. And um, so I'm all over the place tomorrow in uh, South Carolina and then the next day in Georgia, so uh, go here and yon, trying to encourage people. I am, the title is somewhat pompous president and chief executive officer of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I like to say I like to be the chief encouraging officer of the Southern Baptist Convention. Encourage brothers and sisters all over the, across the land. And I hope I'll do that tonight. I want to begin with a story that I know is true. Now, again, I've said before, some preacher's stories you've got to wonder about. But when Billy Graham says a story is true, it's true. He writes this story in his autobiography. If you haven't read it, you need to get it. Great book entitled, appropriately, Just As I Am. A thick book, great book. But in it, he tells of a time many years ago now, he's still alive. He's 98. I got to meet him in 2013, by the way. I wanted to meet him my whole life. Finally got to meet him in 2013. I've got a picture to prove it. Me praying with and for Billy Graham. Whew! I left out of that place just to cry, and I was a crying. I'm a crier. And if you think that makes me less of a man, I'll take you out and whip you. But... <laughs> I cry. That's just the way it is. But anyway, I left out of there. I was just crying. I called my wife. I said, honey, I've been to the White House a dozen times, but today I was in the presence of greatness. He writes of a time years ago when he got to know then presidential, no, excuse me, president-elect. He'd been elected but not yet inaugurated, John F. Kennedy. He said, I got to talk to Mr. Kennedy for a long time, and he just asked me all kinds of questions about the Lord, and he particularly was interested in the second coming of Jesus. I said, why are you so interested? He said, because my church, a Roman Catholic church, never even talks about it. 
and I want to know about it, Mr. Graham. Please tell me. And so he said, I told him about the second coming of Christ. I told him first why Jesus came the first time and then why and how he would come the second time. And he listened so intently. But the next time I got to talk to John F. Kennedy was at the U.S. prayer breakfast, the national prayer breakfast. It was just held, I think, last month in D.C. I got to go once or twice, maybe twice. But anyway, he said, then I was asked, I, Billy Graham, was asked to lead it. And that's a big deal. He said, the problem that day was I was sick. I think I had the flu, aches, pains, chills, fever, the whole deal. He said, I felt terrible, but it was such a big deal, I forced myself to go lead the prayer breakfast. And there's President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And as we're leaving, I'm trying to get out to get to my car. I want to just go collapse in the hotel room. And I find myself walking out with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Graham, I need to ask you a favor. Well, what, Mr. President? Normally when the President of the United States asks you for a favor, you say, yes, sir. Mr. Graham, I need to talk to you today. I need to spend some time with you. Would you please come to my would you please come to the White House with me? I need to talk to you, Mr. Graham. He said, Mr. President, I don't feel good. I I think I have I think I have the flu, Mr. President. I have aches, pains, chills, fever. I don't want to give this to you. Could we, could we talk some other time, Mr. President? He said, sure, Mr. Graham, that, that's fine. That's fine. We'll talk some other time. Well, guess what? There would be no other time. And Billy Graham writes in that book, just as I am, and says, I'll regret till the day I die that I did not force myself to go talk to that young president. Maybe something I could have said could have changed his life for all eternity. And I missed the chance because three weeks later, an assassin's bullet cut short the life of that young president in Dallas, Texas. Billy Graham says, I'll regret it till the day I die. And then he says in his book, just as I am, these words. He said, for him and me that day, it became an irrecoverable moment. That moment was an irrecoverable moment. A moment that could never be replicated. A moment that could never be repeated. A moment that would pass and the opportunity was gone. It was an irrecoverable moment. I believe in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl, there comes irrecoverable moments. Moments when we are confronted by the Lord. Moments when we have an opportunity, a decision, and I believe we can miss that opportunity. And we may not ever have it again. You all think you're healthy and fine. But not a soul in here is guaranteed even a safe trip home. All of you think, well, I've got a lot more time. Nobody knows the day or the hour. I believe in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl comes irrecoverable moments. Moments of decision, moments of opportunity. And it may be for salvation. It may be for a crossroads decision in your life. But God knows and speaks to us and draws us for His reasons and we can respond, yes, or we can say, no. 
The story we're going to read in text, the scripture today, is about a woman, and I will give you an upfront answer. She got it right. She had an irrecoverable moment with the Son of God. And it's one of the most fascinating, uh, scholars would call it scintillating repartee, which means a great conversation. Look, see what happened as Jesus speaks to the woman that we Kate later became known as the woman at the well. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. And I will tell you, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Now, people laugh at me when I say that if they know me because I say that about every one of them. And I also tweet out every day a favorite scripture of the day. In fact, I have a lot of them. Like I have a lot of favorite songs, like that 10,000 Reasons song, one of my favorite. Whew, it gets me going. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Let's look and see what happened. Well, before we do, i got to teach you a little geography. I'm going to Israel again in December, I think. I've been there probably, who knows, 12, 13, 14 times. I don't know. I lose track. But I love Israel. In the south, you know, around Jerusalem is the place called Judea. In the north, around the Sea of Galilee is Galilee. That's real hard. And it's just a beautiful place. But in the middle is the area they still call to this day Samaria. And in Jesus' day, Samaria was a place that was not real popular with Jews. In fact, Samaria would be avoided by Jews. I should have brought a map with me. But anyway, in Jesus' day, a good Jew would not even walk through Samaria. They would bypass it by going east. If you were leaving uh, south to north, you would cross the Jordan River, go up through what is modern-day Jordan called the King's Highway, and then come back over the Jordan River into Galilee or vice versa. It was a rather circuitous route, but you would actually avoid Samaria because Jews didn't want to meet Samaritan people, didn't like them. And it was mutual. They didn't like the Jews either. But guess what Jesus would do when he needed to go south to north or north to south? He just walked right through Samaria. It probably drove his disciples crazy. They were probably thinking, oh Jesus, do we have to do that again? We're going to meet these Samaritan people. Oh, they didn't like the Samaritans. Well, Jesus just walked right through. And not only did he walk through, he'd stop and talk to Samaritan people. Now you think that's odd, but in that day and time, that was a big deal. And he would not only talk to Samaritan men, he would talk to women. Now in 21st century America, you say, big deal. First century Palestine, it was a very big deal. One Jewish writing, not in the Bible, one Jewish writing said this, let not a man speak to a woman, no, not even to his own wife. That's how women were treated. But Jesus, how did he treat women? With dignity, respect. So he just sits down and talks to a woman at the well in Samaria. I know his disciples were going crazy. In fact, we'll see it in just a moment in, one, in, in the text. They were thinking, oh no, there he goes again. But you see, Jesus lived by the heart of God, not by the traditions of men. You can write that one down. That's a good one. Let's look at chapter, chapter 4, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans? Now, stop there just a moment. Do you think Jesus knew that he was a Jew? Do you think he knew that she was a Samaritan woman? Isn't it obvious how we point out the most stupid things? He didn't even answer that. But we'll, get, but we'll come back to that. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, he just changes the subject. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for water, you would have asked me and I would have given you water, living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our forefather Jacob who gave us this well, who drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds, his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Now look carefully. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. But the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water also that I will not thirst and have to keep coming back here to draw. And then Jesus again changes the conversation. Verse 16 and says, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, yes, she saw that. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say the worship that, that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. And Jesus said, now look at verse 21. Woman, believe me, the time is coming, the hour is coming when you worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For the salvation does come from the Jews. But the hour is coming. Now look at verse 23. It's very important. The hour is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. And then look at this last phrase. We miss it. For the Father is seeking seeking those who would worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, and when He does, He will explain everything to us. Jesus said to her, verse 26 is one of the greatest verses in the entirety of the Bible. I who speak to you, I am He. Just then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the village and she said to the men of the village, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they made their way out of the village and they came to him. Oh, my friends, I believe this woman had an irrecoverable moment with Jesus. And I believe she went away changed. And that's what I want to happen to you tonight. We're going to talk, yes, tonight about going and teaching. 
We're going to talk about reaching. And I want you to know the greatest example of all times is our Lord Jesus. He set the example for us. He teaches us how to go. He teaches us how to make disciples. He teaches us how to teach and to win others to Christ. And the woman at the well is truly one of the greatest examples of that. Now, I love to witness. I do. But no one was better than Jesus. I got to witness last night. I was on the airplane. Where did I tell you I was? Ontario, California. Flew to uh, Denver and then to Nashville. And on the plane from Ontario to Denver, a woman sat beside me named Jen. And I got to share Christ with Jen. And the man beside of her, about my age, he was old. His name was Ray or Raymond. That was his name, Ray. And I had a great time witnessing both of them knew Christ. But I love to tell people about Jesus. But nobody was better than Jesus himself. And he begins to talk to this woman at the well. Look with me quickly and see that salvation has implications for the past, the present, and the future. First of all, for the past. Let's look and see what happened. This woman was confronted by Christ. And she was amazed at his ability to know everything that had ever happened about her past. And guess what, my friends? He knows about your past, too. He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows every fault, every thought, every inclination, everything that's ever happened. He knows it, just like he knew about this woman. And all of the pretenses, the outward outward appearances, all of them were invisible to him. We cannot run from our Lord. He knows. He knows exactly where we've been and what we've done. But we still try to avoid him. And when he begins to deal with us, we use an amazing array of spiritual defense mechanisms. We often say silly things to the Lord like, Wait a minute, God, leave me alone. I I like me just like I am. I'm as good as anybody up there in Phil Campbell, Alabama. And God just shakes his head and said, I'm not comparing you to anybody else. I'm comparing you to my son. Sometimes we use that comparison technique, but sometimes we just rationalize and we just say, wait a minute, God, I like me like I am. And God says, well, I don't. But usually we just avoid and evade. God, leave me alone. He knows. He sees. He knows where you are right now. He knows where he wants you to be right now. He saw into this woman's life a deeply flawed past. It was amazing. Maybe others had talked to her about her past before too. and Maybe she felt a judgmental spirit and was repulsed by them. But she's drawn to this man. Even though he knows everything there is to know, she is drawn to him because she realizes her past does not in any way make him feel judgmental. And I believe her past was forgiven. Let's look and see more about it. I believe salvation has implications for the present. Look back to the text with me. It's just powerful. This woman was overwhelmed by his ability to see straight into her heart. So they begin the conversation and, and Jesus says, Would you please give me some water? I mean, he's thirsty. In that place, there were very few wells. And when you got to one... Uh, You wanted something to drink, and if you didn't have a bucket or a jar, you you were often in bad shape. And I know some of you younger folks don't know what it's like to have to draw water out of a well, but I do. 
And there was a day and time when I'd go to my grandma's house, I had to get the water out of the well by wrenching up the bucket out of the thing. I mean, the bucket came up out of the well, and everybody drank from one dipper. How about that? I mean, we didn't care about germs. We didn't even know what they were. We just drank out of the same dipper, and everybody slobber in it. It didn't matter. Jesus said, would you please give me a drink? She's offended. Excuse me? Excuse me? A drink? You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman, and you ask me for a drink? Again, as if he didn't know that he was a Jewish man, she was a Samaritan woman. We waste so much of God's time dealing with the stupidest stuff. She's pointing out the gender and religious difference, the ethnic, the ethnic difference, and he don't even care. And he didn't even respond. It. Notice, he does not even answer that silly question, that silly response. He didn't even deal with it. Sometimes it's just best to look at people and just walk on. If they're just stupid, just leave them alone in their stupidity. But he changes the subject like a great witness does and begins to talk about something that will really go into a witnessing conversation. He said, now if he lived in Phil Campbell, Alabama, here's what he would have said. Honey child, let me tell you something. If you had any idea who it was talking to you and you don't yet, but you're going to. And if you had any idea, what does it say about the gift of God, which you don't yet, but you're fixing to. If you had any idea, you'd be asking me. And the water I give you is very different. Let me tell you, at this point, this woman's hooked. She's hooked. This man is different. And by the way, she had known a lot of men. This man is different than any man I've ever met. Well, give me that water. I want it, she said. Give me that water so I don't have to keep coming back here for more water. Oh, honey, child, you don't even understand. I'm talking about a special kind of water. You see, he saw inside of her a deep void, a deep lack, a deep vacuum that was there. So he knows that he is going to talk to her about that which she needs. And what does this woman need? She needs what you need and I need, and that is a living relationship with a living God. Oh, my friends, that's what we want to share with the people in northwest Alabama about. That's why we're to go and tell them we've got something they desperately need. And so he said, I've got water, and if you'll drink from that water, it will fix you from the inside out. And so he is not only teaching, he is going and sharing the gospel, he is now teaching good theology. That's a part of discipleship. And so he teaches her the reality that we've learned, I hope, it's called eternal security of the believer. What does he say? He said, honey child, if you drink the water I give you, it becomes a well of water springing up to what? Eternal life. You drink from the Jesus fountain and you don't ever have to drink again. You get truly saved, you're truly saved forever. Oh honey, I've got water. It, it's, it's amazing water. This woman is hooked. She is hooked. and She wants to know more about it. But then Jesus changes the whole conversation. Go call your husband. Whoops. Sensitive subject. But he knew. She said, I, I, I don't have one right now. No, you don't. In fact, you've had five, and the one you got now is not yours. But then, look at the text. She begins to talk to him about worship. 
Now, I love this. This is a great point of discipleship. This is amazing. She begins to talk about the appropriateness of where to worship. She figures since she's in a spiritual discussion, she's going to have something to argue about. Now, we're good at that, aren't we? So she begins to talk to him about where to worship. Now, why is that important? Well, to the Samaritans, the place of worship was called Mount Gerizim, a mountain in Samaria, large hill actually, but Mount Gerizim. And they had their own worship, they had their own temple, they had their own belief in their own Messiah. So she said, I know that you Jews say we're supposed to worship down yonder in Jerusalem. We have our own worship here on this mountain. And so Jesus cuts to the quick and says, oh honey child, time out, time out. No, you don't understand. You're wanting to talk to me about where to worship? Jesus said what matters is who you worship and how you worship him. Now listen carefully, Alabama. He said what matters is who you worship and how you worship him. He said, oh honey, don't you understand that you are to worship the Father and you're to worship him honestly and spiritually, in spirit and in truth. That's what really matters. Yes, you need living water, a living relationship, but you need it with a God who is worthy to be worshipped. This woman never heard anything like that in her whole life. It doesn't matter where you worship, it matters who you worship and how you worship Him. Oh, my friends, he was teaching something powerful here. He was teaching her that the reality of our witness and our mission is about that we are all we're to bring every man, woman, boy and girl in this area of Alabama to a place where they can have a worship relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And our job will not be done until we have shared that message with every man, woman, boy and girl in northwest Alabama. And you may think they've all heard the gospel, and I'm going to tell you they have not. Well, they may have heard some things, but they've never had anybody sit down with them and share with them, how can I have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? She said, oh, we're supposed to worship. No, 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 honey. Look and see what he says. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. You'll neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you, but you, you, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. But the hour is coming, verse 23, when true worshipers will worship who? The Father. How? Spiritually and honestly. And then he says, in that latter part of that next verse, Father is seeking such worshipers. Listen to me. The God, the God of the universe is seeking you to worship Him. Now, we still fuss all over the Southern Baptist Convention about the styles of worship. Now, I know here in Phil Campbell, you've never fussed about things like that. But everybody everywhere else has an opinion about worship style, let me just tell you. And they're not shy about telling you what their preference is. Is it okay to have a worship style preference? Yep. I have one, and mine is right. Well, I think so. It's okay to have your own preferences. But I've got a little news flash for you. God doesn't care about your preference. And he doesn't care about mine as right as mine is. What he cares about is that I worship him. And I worship him how? Spiritually and honestly. We put on such facades 
And God says, I just want you to worship me spiritually and honestly. Why? Because I'm a spiritual being. And you're to worship me in spirit and in truth. And he said it not once, but twice to emphasize its importance. Oh, my friends, this woman realizes, I've never had a conversation like this in my life. This man is teaching me something I need to know. He tells me I need spiritual water. He needs me, tells me I need a spiritual relationship where there's worship that's honest and spiritual. I've never had this in my life. And so she retorts back and says, well, wait a minute, the Messiah's coming, and when he does, he is going to explain all of this. You see, she just came to town to get some water. She had no idea that she is now in the presence of the Son of God who would later die for her. She said, wait a minute, the Messiah's coming, and when he does, he's going to explain it all. Verse 26. Liberal theologians say Jesus never came to be worshipped, never claimed to be the Son of God. Let me tell you something. That's a lie. In verse 26, he said, Honey child, I who stand before you, I am he. Whoa. She is standing in front of the Messiah. What a day. What an irrecoverable moment. This woman, who had failed so miserably, gets the privilege of having a dialogue with Jesus. And when you share the gospel with that man, woman, boy, or girl, you're giving them the opportunity to have a dialogue with the Son of God. And that's why we obey the Great Commission. Now the Bible doesn't tell us everything. But I believe at that moment that woman's past was forgiven. And her present was altered with a recognition of what true worship was about. And she had the ability to drink living water for the first time in her life. Quickly and last. Her future was changed too. Her future was changed too. What happened? Oh, oh! I didn't even read. I think I missed that that verse, that that, that point where it says in verse twenty-seven. At that at that point, the disciples came back. Yeah, I forgot to read that. What does it say? At that point, the disciples came back and saw him talking with a woman. Remember what I told you about men talking with women? Yet none dared ask, "Why are you talking to her?" or "What do you want?" They had already learned. Don't say anything to him. He lives by the heart of God, not by the traditions of men. He's, he, you don't say anything to him. None dared ask, why are you talking to that woman? She's a Samaritan. Well, they'd already learned Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. Leaving her water jar, she goes back into the village and she says to the men, and by the way, she obviously knew a lot of them. <laughs> she said, come see this man. Come see this man. Could this be the Christ? Oh, by the way, the rest of the story, they go out to see Jesus, and the Bible says that he spent days there. Probably drove his disciples nuts again. But what do you think he did? Oh, it says, and many believed in him. He was winning, winning the lost to Christ and teaching the saved how to walk strong. Jesus was the great example of someone who would go, who would make, and who would teach.
So what is the bottom line? This woman's future was changed. Why? Listen carefully. This woman who had been the talk of the town, no doubt. Listen to me. Now gets the town to talk about Jesus. This woman who had been a true symbol of failure now points the people to where they can find victory. This woman, Samaritan woman, failed and broken, shows the people to the way that where they could find eternal life. This woman became a soul winner, a witness. Oh, what a day she had. God wants you to be the same. God wants you to be a soul winner. God wants you to tell others about Christ. She found Christ. She immediately started telling other people about Christ. Isn't that what our job assignment is? First to tell, then to share. That's the assignment He's given to us. I was on an airplane before, not yesterday, some other time. I'm pretty excited about, uh, let me tell you about this one. I, I want you to pray for a young woman named Erin. Well, not that young, but in my age, everybody is younger. But Erin, uh, pray for her. I just, uh, this is a woman I witnessed to a year ago on the airplane. A very engaging conversation. And I, I tried to get in touch with her over Facebook or something. And a year later, she this week messaged me back and gave me her address because I told her that I wanted to send her a Bible. So I'm just praising God that this week I got a letter, a response from her. And so I've already written her a note and we're sending her a Bible. It'll go in the mail tomorrow. Pray for Aaron. But before that, I was on the airplane from somewhere out west. Doesn't matter. Sat beside a young woman again and an older man. Her name, Claire. His name, Howell. We began the obligatory small talk. And I was dressed like this, which is not usual now these days. And she said, well, why are you dressed like that? What do you, what do, you do for a living? I said, well, I'm in ministry. I said, um, but, and by the way, that changes conversations on an airplane. Let me just tell you. It, it makes people sober up. It, people change. It, the whole, everything's different. But anyway, I said, if you'll explain to me your spiritual background, I will uh, sh tell you more about what my job is. And so... What about you? And he was real out there. He said, well, I'm saved and I'm a Southern Baptist. He didn't even know I was Baptist yet. And I said, well, that's good. He said, uh, I go to a church in New Mexico. I said, well, that's good. And I said, what about you, honey? And, and she said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I said, well, that's good. Does that mean you're a member of a Christian church or Christian denomination? She said, well, I don't even know what that means. I thought, typical 20-something answer. I said, well, I'll tell you what it means. She said, okay, please do. She said, you say you're a minister? I said, yeah. She said, well, why are you dressed? I said, well, I was just speaking to a group of churches. Well, what did you say to them? And I quoted Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we're encompassed about by such a great cloud. I've never done this in a witness before. But she asked, what did I say to them? I said, okay, here's what I said. Wherefore, seeing we're encompassed about by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin, every weight, and the sin that doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. 
and he's now set down at the right hand of God the Father. And I looked over, and she's just weeping. She's crying. And I didn't know why. I've already told you about me, okay? I'm a crier. So I said to her, I said, honey, please don't cry. She said, why not? I said, because if you cry, I cry with you, and I won't even know why I'm crying. It's embarrassing. She said, I can't stop crying, but please do not stop talking. I said, okay. Claire prayed out loud to receive Christ on that airplane before we landed. She sent me an email. I've got it. It's entitled, Best Airplane Ride Ever. She said, when I got off the plane, I called my mama. And I said, Mom, my life has been changed forever. I love Jesus. Claire found Christ. It was the first thing she did. She shared Christ. God wants us to find Him, but God wants us to tell others about Him. And so I encourage you tonight to be a going Christian. To be a reaching, teaching Christian. To be a disciple-making Christian. Irrecoverable moments come in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And it's our job to help them find that dialogue with Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this time. I pray, Lord God, that you would be the Lord of every man, woman, boy, and girl here. And God, if there is anyone here tonight that does not know you. I pray that tonight this would be a night of salvation like that which I believe came to this woman at the well. But God, for all of us who have given our lives to you, God, I think you're giving us another chance tonight to reaffirm our role of being a going and making and reaching and teaching group of people. And so I pray, God, you would let us be great commission Christians to be on mission, co-mission with you. And Father, I pray that you would give us resolve, a renewed encouragement tonight to do just that. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the sweet spirit I felt here. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.